you know, you have a player that's that's allocated to a physio and then, you know, there's this conveyor belt of approach, then the physio hands it over to the conditioning guys and the conditioning guys hand it over to the, the on-field coach and then and, and there's it's a very, um, yeah, sort of disjointed process. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast with Tim Parham is all about hamstring injuries and our approach to them. So how aggressive can we be in that return-to-play process from a hamstring injury? How do we deal with the players that are happy to be aggressive with the approach versus those that are a little bit cautious and need that little bit more time or need that little bit more nurturing, especially early on within the rehab process. So Tim is head of player health at Adelaide Football Club, has an extensive experience in a rehab setting, formerly of Arsenal. Many will know him from there. So a really interesting episode. We've gone into hamstring injuries quite a lot over the years uh, in the podcast, but it's good to get a real hands-on practitioner's view of how aggressive we can be with with this type of injury that, as we know, is a, is a big burden for many in pro sport. So a really interesting episode coming up with Tim. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Tim. Tim Parham, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, fantastic. No, thanks for having me. Um, I've been a long time listener, so yeah, good to be be involved um, and appreciate the invite. Thank you. My pleasure. It's always, um, it's always a struggle when it comes to lining up time zones and, and pro sports. I appreciate you've been flexible and, uh, and jumping on, but Tim, anyone doesn't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a one, two minute brief background to, to you and how you've got to what you've got to? Yep. So um, I currently work in, in AFL. Um, I'm head of player health at Adelaide Football Club. Um, but just backtracking from that, um, my initial sort of course of study was in uh, human movement, exercise, sports science, which I which I absolutely loved. Um, my initial intent was to, to get into PE teaching. Um, 
and I worked out within sort of a couple of weeks of, of studying teaching that that wasn't for me. Um, so I took a bit of time off, actually um, got stuck into a, you know, some post-grad study in clinical rehab, um, which I absolutely loved. Um, and from there, with, on the advice of a few sort of mentors and people I really respected, um, got stuck into physiotherapy. Um, I suppose with the backdrop of exercise and sports science and you know, some post-grad experience in, in rehab, I've really come to appreciate that you know, the, the interplay between the two, I suppose, sciences. Um, and yeah, you know, I was very lucky in the early stages of my career to, to work at a really progressive private practice here in Adelaide um, with some good links to, you know, some key or collaboration with some key you know, sporting clubs here in Adelaide. So um, which range from Tennis, Tennis Australia to, to Netball to Lacrosse um, and, and some second tier football with the SNFL. Uh, here in Adelaide. Um, I suppose in 2011, I had a, an opportunity um, that presented itself to, to move to Sydney and, and be involved with the Greater Western, si Greater Western Sydney um, AFL team, which were slated to come into the competition in 2012. Um, and that was, yeah, the high performance manager there was uh, John Quinn, who in AFL circles was sort of regarded as a bit of the godfather of, of sports science and yeah it was an opportunity to sort of sink my teeth in full time into that um, into that space and and yeah I sort of really enjoyed my time at Sydney a new club um, working with some great people um, John Quinn, Lockie Wilmot, Nick Walsh um, a real sort of mixed bag of um, experiences in that it's very rare to be starting a sporting club from from scratch. So, as hard as some of those instances were, it was an unbelievable sort of learning experience. And and I suppose from there, um, another opportunity to present presented itself to move back to Adelaide, um, working with Darren Burgess at, at Port Adelaide, um, of which yeah, it was a sort of natural fit. Um, philosophically, I really gelled with Darren from from the get go. Um, yeah, and I was at, at Port Adelaide for a bit and then in 2018 moved to, to the UK and and took up a role with Arsenal um, Yeah, as a head of rehabilitation or the rehabilitation coordinator for the first team. Um, so, and now I find myself back here in 2021, moved back to Adelaide and, um, yeah, working for the Adelaide Football Club. And for those not familiar, that's the, the sort of the team across the road from Port Adelaide, so the the sort of arch rival so um yeah sort of heading up the the physio department there but um again probably leaning a lot on that that sort of you know that link between medical and high performance what was the culture shock was it a culture shock coming to london from from adelaide um a little bit yeah i mean certainly busier if you've ever spent any time in adelaide it's like a you know coffin Cops a bit of ridicule for being a big country town, but um, I think the biggest contrast for me was in the actual sport itself and the culture around the sport. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that, Tim, because I'm I'm really interested to know. Yeah, so I mean, upon reflection, one of the things I probably wasn't prepared for was kind of just how homogenous AFL is, and you know, I'd been lucky enough to work at two clubs. Um, but I had a really strong impression that, you know, those two clubs were very similar, similar personalities, um, 
you know, similar culture around training, methodology, that sort of stuff, um, gym culture, you know, what, what game day looks like, what recovery looks like, that sort of stuff. Um, I suppose coming into football, um, it was the complete opposite. Um, and I think a lot of that just boils down to the, the different nationalities, um, the different, uh, yeah, I suppose, ideas, opinions, um, belief systems. Um, and, and so that was probably the most striking distant, uh, difference early was, was just those yeah, philosophical challenges around what's what and how things are done. And um, we saw that dynamic within the squad at Arsenal. I think in the first year we had 14 nationalities out of a squad of 28. Um, so to navigate that was, was certainly challenging. And, and then also not coming from a, you know, a football background. Um, and some advice was given to me early days was to actually use that to my advantage, of which I sort of was actually good advice in the end because you know, as, a, as an Australian, unfortunately, you don't have a lot of football credibility, but you do have some runs on the board in the, in the world of sports science, sports medicine, perhaps, in the, in the eyes of some. So to that end, um, I could sort of, you know, plead a little bit of igno ignorance and say, look, at, you know, I don't sort of care what you think, but this is, this is kind of what I believe as, a, as an outsider looking in. So, um, yeah, that, that was sort of one of the, the challenges as well early was just, you know, finding your groove with, with different cohorts within that playing group. So what, was it 2018 that you came to Arsenal? Then? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, it was probably about that time when you've there was a bit of an influx of people, especially like like in the FA, for example, and I guess you'll know because you'll have dealt with them guys, when it was quite a, and I think it's pretty carried on since then, that having non-football people coming into football was quite fashionable and probably probably still is and it's become the norm. Whereas maybe a little bit before then, 5, 10, 15 years before then, you had to be a foot, to, to be in football, you were a football guy. But I think with the kind of influences outside of that i think that's a that's a really good thing and you were probably yeah one of the one of the guys to be involved who, who weren't football guys and like you say that was probably a um a, a benefit a lot of the time yeah i, I think so um yeah and I, I suppose the other thing for my experience there was um and probably one i didn't give a great deal of gravitas to originally was that I started soon after Arsene uh, finished up at Arsenal. So in that sense, you've also got a, foot, a football club which is so steeped in, um, in traditions and, and you know, his fingerprints were, were everywhere all over the, the club. Um, and, you know, you, you see in world sport that those, those legacies are very hard to, you know, the, um, the, the period of time immediately after is always a, a challenging one. So... Um, that was something as as well, which added just another layer of detail to to the experience. Yeah, but well, the the first part that I wanted to put to you, and it kind of maybe fits in with this cultural uh, differences that you you have in a club, and and specifically the mindsets of players when they're going through a, a rehab, maybe a even a short, medium, long term rehab, whatever it is. And I kind of put myself in the in the wannabe player that I was and where I kind of fit into this cautious versus more aggressive rehabber but I guess you've dealt with people all along the all on that spectrum how do you manage those those mindsets from the the super super aggressive guys that just want to 
kind of go out and, and push through to the to the more probably like me being the more cautious rehabber how do you deal with those yeah it's a really tricky one and i think the first thing you have to lean on is that sort of that relationship building and that that element of trust which obviously doesn't happen straight away um i think you know and probably speaking a little bit to to rehab philosophy i think you know while i've i've sort of been involved in you know some of the pointy ended discussions around rehab planning and and timelines and and how we're going to sort of skin the cat i think you know the, the first thing to point to is a rehab journey should be a a collaborative one between player and practitioners and then the other thing from that is it, it should be a you really want to sort of avoid the conveyor belt approach to rehab which you know i did see a little bit of in in football especially um and i think a lot of that comes from you know just getting everyone on the same page giving everyone some buy-in in terms of how the, the athlete should be managed and and doing that from day one um I sort of, you know, one of my bugbears is is when, you know, you have a player that's that's allocated to a physio, and then you know there's this conveyor belt of approach. Then the physio hands it over to the conditioning guys, and the conditioning guys hand it over to the the on field coach, and then and and there's it's a very um, yeah sort of disjointed process. Whereas I feel like, you know, the really good rehab programs we've been able to roll out are ones where there's buy-in with all stakeholders there's a fair bit of rigor and discussion around management and and probably an answer to your question in those key conversations from sort of day one that's when a lot of that that know-how and experience um you know comes to the fore because ultimately you're, you're dealing with you know a stack of experience within your high performance medical team and you should really lean on that. And as part of that, that that's probably a good way to strategize. Well, what's our what's our plan of attack here with this with this athlete? Because you know he we know he may be non-compliant. How do we you know nudge behavior to get better buy-in? Or on the flip side, is, is you know is there anything else that we can throw at him that's a little bit left of center? Because we know this guy enjoys you know. Um, you know, so he's a bit of a lateral thinker, or he's a deep thinker, you know, that sort of stuff. So I think a lot of that starts, you know, with your initial discussions and your initial, um, yeah, I suppose mapping out the, the rehab pathways is just, you know, trying to all get on the same page from a high performance medical team. And then importantly, once you have that sort of that rigor within and that is that you have that one message out. And then when you are engaging with that player right from sort of day zero to actually have some transparency of plan and and then try and get that buy-in and that that collaborative two-way approach because I think all too often um, we get sucked in a little bit as practitioners with our own sort of sense of self-importance within, you know, you know while working with these athletes. and. The big thing for me is often, you know, we're super lucky. We work at the pointy end of a sport, um, but these guys didn't get here by accident. They got here, you know, because they're bloody good at what they do. They're, they're able to adapt and respond to stimulus quickly. And, you know, they're generally pretty robust as a result of that. So to then try and come in and, and sort of, you know, imprint your way of the highway type methodology just doesn't kind of sit well with me. And I always, you know, sort of thought that, yeah, the craft is is the almost you know equally as important as the science. 
one thing that's come up a couple of times, <clears throat> and there's a bit of a contrast here, how different clubs do it, and I'd love to hear if you've kind of come across both and which one you'd prefer, where a player gets injured and they would get assigned, especially in bigger clubs where there's multiple members of staff, probably don't work when there's the smaller teams. But a player would get injured and they're assigned to, like you say, a physio, and that physio would run through that process with them and they get handed over to a specific person on the other side who runs through them and until another pro- until another point in the process or the alternative is that kind of well they're not assigned to someone and it's a kind of availability and it's mixed up and maybe it's purposely led that way so there's different influences is there a specific way that you've gone about things is there pros and cons of both or is that something that you've not come across Yeah, I, I mean, there certainly is, um, you know, I'd like to think in terms of, um, you know, that, that rollout and, and how it works amongst, you know, allocated to certain physios and so forth. Um, I, I mean, it, it all gets down to me in terms of, and this is the biggest challenge in my mind, is having a high-performance medical staff that all speak like a common language so touched on a little bit the sort of rigor within and the one message out i think that's important um but it's that sort of mutual recognition of what stuff looks like what a progression and regression looks like you know how someone is thinking um i suppose i like to to be super structured um and and at times i've been criticized for that um but for me sometimes having a, a really good structure um in terms of your rehab plan means that you can have that that sort of crossover amongst staff and and i I actually think it's fairly healthy to have you know athletes um change hands and and let those sort of key practitioners within your staff you know play to their play their one would um so an example of that would be you know if if a physio is taking a lead on a certain athlete and they're deemed to be the lead physio and they're saying look i'm want to roll out some level one force absorption work today. Now, you may not know the sets and reps, you may not know, you know, the exact rollout, but you've got a very sort of, you know, fairly clear understanding of what that looks like and, you know, and what has preceded that and also what what is going to, yeah, what's going to be the next progression. So I think that ability to speak a common language early is super important and I think it's in some way helps to mitigate that, um, you know, that sort of um, the perception of where one athlete is tied to to one practitioner. So that that's sort of, you know, how I sort of try and navigate that, rightly or wrongly. Yeah, no, that's fine, mate. It's just what, something that's come up a couple of times I thought I'd get your take on it. Another thing that you mentioned there was doing certain things, maybe, and use your phrase, left of centre. If, if that player is open to that kind of thing or thinks laterally. Is there anything that you've done that's been a little bit left of centre that has had really good success? Whether it, I don't know, focus on a specific goal to do X, Y, or Z. Any examples that you could potentially give us? Um, not specifically in terms of modalities. I think if you could go down into specifics of that sort of stuff, I, I tend to subscribe to the fact that more often than not, if a, if a player believes that it's helping them, it, and it probably is, um, I think as well, I'm, I'm pretty big on not sort of shutting gates on on athletes if they want to do something. So if they want to pursue, you know, additional massage or they 
I think, you know, within reason, you, you allow some of that to create that sort of two-way um, sort of partnership in the process. Um, but on a broader sort of perspective, one of the things that works kind of well in AFL is we, we use some of the, the long-term rehab um, injured guys. We use it as a bit of an opportunity, um, you know, to work on, you know, not only athletic development, that sort of stuff, but having a broader sort of approach to, you know, the individual and, um, you know, not wanting to get too sensitive about things, but you might look at stuff like cooking classes or additional study or, you know, is this a, a six or eight week window where we can do a short course online? Um, would you like to learn how to cook? Can we help engage you in that sort of process? So as silly as it sounds, sometimes having those left of center ideas across the rehab or training off site or training, you know, in altitude or, or the, you know, in heat and that sort of stuff can sometimes, you know, just sort of switch, you know, shift the needle a little bit in terms of the buy-in and, and I suppose that, that mutual recognition that it is a, a two-way sort of process. Cool. Right. Let, let's, let's dive into hamstrings because first everyone's dealing with hamstrings. Everyone loves talking about hamstrings. So let's, 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 let's have a little chat around your kind of philosophy. Understanding and assessing risk. Is that something that you are doing on a regular basis? How do you go about this? How's your thinking changed in this? Maybe influence of, of your time in football, going back to AFL. What's your general can, general consensus when it comes to understanding and assessing risk? Yeah, it, it, obviously a complex one and one that you know you do a lot of reading on. It, it ultimately, and rightly or wrongly, the soft tissue injury status is, is something you, you're judged on as a as a high performance department, certainly in AFL. Um, so yeah, it is one that consumes a fair bit of um, time, consideration, and, and reviewing of sort of of data. Um, the risk profiling stuff for me is. You know, it's fairly important. We um, we look at you know athletes who have a history of hamstring injury as being significant. Um, we look at fascicle lengths as a as a measure, um, more so just to you know be another piece of information that we might lean on at, at various points. And then I, I suppose in conjunction with that, you know, it's all about your your chronic training loads in terms of speed exposure, and then. You know what your exposure looks like in the gym, um, and your eccentric loading, and and what that looks like. So we we tend to have a, a fair bit of um, sort of data underpinning that. Um, certainly in AFL with our, our sports science staff, and um, you know it's always sort of obviously got you know a lot of objective data, but you know a lot of it boils down to subjective subjective feedback as well, um, and, and guiding sort of discussions in that space. When it comes to measuring fascicle length, are you getting specialists in to, to do that or referring out? Yeah, so we normally get someone in at the club, um, Brian Timmons, who does that. And I know a few of the clubs clubs do that. Um, and look, I, you know, and I'd say this if Brian was sitting right next to me, it's not something we absolutely hang our hat on, but it, it might just guide some of our decision making, you know, at various points. Um and as part of an overall sort of risk profile. So we found that to be handy. Um, I suppose ultimately um, training consistency, training load and consistent eccentric strength dose um, are your key key pillars, I suppose, with that. 
is there any overarching management that you put in place for your guys who have had previous hamstring injuries? Anything that's relatively consistent or does that vary between athlete to athlete? Um, does vary athlete to athlete. One thing we have had a fair bit of success with is, you know, across the week, and we're super lucky in AFL in many respects, we don't have the same fixture congestion that you have in a in football, say. So your turnaround between games is generally seven days, sometimes six, sometimes eight, and very rarely five days. So it means you, more often than not, get a really good eccentric stimulus. Um, and you can do that fairly safely at around that sort of match day minus three. And so you can hang your hat on that and some consistency of that across across your program. Um, for guys who are a, a little bit more susceptible to, to hammy injuries or have a history, we, we tend to double down a little bit in terms of their overall load. Um, we obviously monitor their, their speed loads um, and make sure equally that we're not overcooking them, but in addition, we're not undercooking them either and trying to find a bit of a sweet spot in terms of their chronic training load. Um, but we've had some good success with, um, and it was a bit of a, I suppose, a, um, a theory sort of that um, Craig Purdom sort of suggested, which was some, some microdosing. And, um, you know, we, we do a lot of isometric microdosing across the week, um, sometimes as a segue to training, sometimes in their own time. Um, and, you know, we don't sort of hang our hat on it in isolation, but again, it's just another sort of piece of the, the puzzle. Um, in terms of our overall program, we we tend to really be bullish about, you know, loading in an isometric sense. This is a squad wide, sort of from match day plus two, um, match day minus three, we then do our sort of um, eccentric and super maximal eccentric stuff. Um, and then generally speaking, we actually use um, our pre-training window as a bit of a, a way to sort of, you know, microdose some some isometrics and quasi-isometric um, load in there um, under the pretense of, of pre, you know, individual prep or prep to train. Um, but we found that being sort of beneficial across, you know, whenever the guys go on grass, they're, they're, they're actually doing something which, you know, across the, the course of a week, you know, actually adds up to something reasonably significant. So, yeah, to that end, um, we've had some reasonable success with that. When it comes back to size selection, Tim, what does that look like in terms of the, the microdosing of the quasi-asymmetrics and isometrics? Um, it'd be a little bit dependent on um, on sort of their injury history. Um, you're talking specifically about the guys with the injury history, or the yeah, the more no, sort of I, yeah, we could stuff? we could we could start there, but I'd I'd love to know the the more general group stuff as well. If yeah, you have to so share, I course. suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the guys with sort of more your you know your proximal hammy history, um, that could be anything from you know some some loaded yeah work on the glute hand machine, some bridge positions, um, and we're not talking like you know a full you know. Um, strength session per se we're talking more around you know multiple hits of sort of 10 minutes um total you know so they're in and out um reasonably quick um and then broadly speaking in terms of uh, and then sorry if the guys were more sort of knee dominant then that that might look like something more knee dominant by way of like a you know a a, a nordic iso or um you know some sort of 
you know, isometric on the hamstring curl when prone um, to sort of 30 degrees flexion. Um, but again, it's it's not, you know, a, you know, a big session. Again, it's using that micro dosing philosophy sometimes twice a day, um, you know, generally with six to eight hours between between bouts, sometimes up to five times a week. Um, whether that's grounded at any in any overwhelming science, we're not sure, but it might go some way to sort of building some some robustness and a bit of foundation. And from a from a team perspective, what how does that does that differ at all? Um, yeah, we probably don't go as aggressively with the team. We sort of still across that week surf the you know that that sort of that curve a little bit and and work from your your isometrics early in the week to your quasi isometrics to your eccentrics and super maximal eccentrics um, and your power based work towards the back end of the week. Um, but in terms of exercise selection, I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty much a horses for courses as a, as a global package, you know, some hip dominant, some knee dominant, um, you know, always looking to sort of have this progression regression model that we, we touched on before. And then in keeping with that, um, single leg, double leg, you know, hinge patterns and so forth as, as part of a pretty comprehensive, um, I suppose, gym program. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Tim. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we dive deep into hamstring injuries and our approach to them and Tim's real world experiences of how aggressive we can really be with this type of injury. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade, with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. And now back to the episode with Tim. So when it comes to hamstring injuries, what's your general philosophy? How aggressive, come back to that cautious rehabber versus aggressive rehabber. You're, you're, you could be the rehabber because you are the the, re, the rehab uh, guy, I suppose. How aggressive are you? How cautious are you when it comes to your philosophy? Yeah, I, I suppose ultimately it, it's an aggressive approach. I, I mean, and, and some of that is, I suppose, you know, marrying up the clinical picture with some experience and then, you know, um, this all, everything's always contextual in terms of what the demands of of the sport is and and the athlete and and what the the, the team um, is demanding at that point in time um so on the whole it'd be i'd like to say i'm fairly aggressive I, I always sort of use that mantra that you know there's no such thing as a perfect a perfect 
rehab and if, and if it is perfect for whatever reason then you've probably taken your time getting there so um yeah to that end it's always um you know we try and get guys going pretty quickly you know with exception based on clinical picture obviously but yeah try and um up the ante in terms of the return to play and i suppose a lot of that is just born out of you know some success and some failures but certainly some success in in getting guys to you know to play probably earlier than anticipated so in terms of the aggressive aggression of that of that approach how does it what does that what does that look like what what aspects of that timeline are more aggressive than you'd maybe see elsewhere or you've done previously yeah so i think like in terms of um a garden variety hamstring and again it's such a broad area and there's there's so many sort of mitigating factors around clinical picture but in terms of your sort of garden variety hamstring um you know your your sort of three to four weeker you know generally try and get guys with some isometric load in at sort of day three and some some more aggressive global load on day three or four um and generally speaking try and get them on grass sort of running by about day five at the latest if we can um and and that's sort of something that you know actually in football everyone's reasonably um aggressive and progressive with um i think that early return to run return to you know return to to movement is um it's a pretty commonly held sort of thing um i think the, the the other thing to break down and again it probably touches on you know your relationship with the, the athlete and that sort of stuff is is education and, and why we want to load and, and navigating pain and navigating discomfort and, and trying to sort of um, yeah educate and upskill the athlete as to you know um, as to why stuff's important early when perhaps the inclination is to to maybe do less rather than more do them isometrics that you mentioned on day three is that is that a common thread throughout in terms of using isometrics whatever in whatever form that is or do they kind of stay at the front end and and progress uh yeah they're they're a bit of a mainstay throughout and a lot will depend on you know where you where you'd sort of layer them into your program often that would be more of a you know i hate using the term but like an activation um as a bit of a mainstay throughout the program with the more sort of top end eccentric stuff sort of post session and um, you know, keeping them out of harm's way in terms of what they're going to do on ground. So, um, yeah, that they are a bit of a mainstay, but cert- certainly early, they're a nice way to sort of gauge your or gauge an athlete's level of discomfort, but also being able to, you know, um, get some therapeutic load into those sort of key areas and and targeted load for that for that matter. We had Jack Hickey write a, a nice um q a piece for, for sports with quite a while ago actually and he spoke about the introduction of of high intensity eccentrics and how we can be again using this aggressive um kind of theme throughout this podcast how, how aggressive we can be with that how earlier are you programming high intensity eccentrics in i know it's a there's lots of nuance in there in terms of player and type of injury but when it comes to hammies how, how early are you getting those in there yeah, I think a lot of it goes back to that progression regression model and, and what you've you know you've had eyes on what they've been able to do and what they've been able to tolerate. Um, so in keeping with that, I mean, 
generally pretty early and, and whether that it, it can take different forms we find like you know if someone's a, a more of a knee dominant sort of distal hamstring um, there actually is scope to do some more progressive reactive you know eccentric work um, you know at the proximal end and, and you might layer that in you know as soon as day 10 or day 12 you know if they're tracking fantastically well it is a horses for courses thing um, and again you want to make sure that they've in my view, they've tolerated a, a reasonable amount of eccentric load, you know, in a controlled sense first, obviously, and then before layering in some of that sort of higher level stuff. Nice, nice. And I, I won't keep referencing sports with articles, I, I promise. But we had a we had one from uh, from Simon Harris at the uh, N Swiss. Was he at GWS with you, by the way, Simon? No, we didn't. We didn't cross okay. paths, but he, yeah, he came sort of after the fact, and yeah. Okay, because he he wrote a nice piece on return to running framework, and this kind of feeds into this chat. And I just wondered if you had something s- similar that you kind of used a bit of a guide to get people from, you know, injury day one to throughout that 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 running running progressions and and back out onto the pitch. Now that you, in terms of hammies, that happens pretty quickly, but I suppose a, a more global approach to return to running yeah so i mean one of the things that you try and layer in well i try and layer in with the running stuff is um is actually have like a a, you know a quality focus and and one of my bugbears is is you know the first run uh, for whoever it may be being you know very long slow protracted walk jog you know low quality um running and and you know as a general thing we try and try and layer in some some running mech even if it's some ankling or dribbling you know at day three day four um you know some some tempo running as soon as possible um and then once you've sort of got that you know two or three runs under your belt try and move towards more some you know some periodization models around intensive extensive exposure and, and bookending your your sort of more high speed um exposure across the week um I suppose one of the things I, I, I took from football, um, which I really thought was done exceptionally well, was was the the ebb and flow across the week. Um, I suppose one of the criticisms I have of AFL is they train at one speed and it, it's flat out and it's it's always one speed and some of that's cultural. Whereas I think in football, there's probably a, a greater understanding of you know, you work on different days and, you know, you have your key loading days and you have your more intensive days and your extensive days and so forth. Um, so I've been trying to, you know, sort of bring some of that into to the rehab methodology as well and, and having days where, you know, they're low volume but high density in terms of your intensive metrics. Um, and that's certainly been something that, you know, I haven't seen a heap of in AFL because it is such a hybrid extensive sport you know it's a, it's a lot about high speed and sprint um, but teasing out some of those more intensive metrics I think is really important um, XLD cell explosive distance and, and these sort of more you know quaint intensive metrics I think is really important and then equal to that as, as soon as possible I do see you know a great benefit in therapeutic high speed running um, and as a general principle try and layer in lots of that early um early and often i suppose so yeah that that's probably the the framework i sort of work to i always go back to to what a typical game looks like what a worst case scenario looks like in terms of that particular athlete and 
and sort of work back from that, not being afraid to it at various points. And if you have the luxury of being able to do so, is, is build a good body of work in that the sort of top end sprint stuff and and trying to where possible get get a lot of that contextual sort of sprint exposure in your rehab sessions. So rather than running pole, pole to pole, cone to cone, try and create it within a drill scenario, try and try and get it in a position specific scenario, um, and then try and get your, your sprint efforts and sprint distances re- replicating what, what a game would look like. Did you come up against any resistance in terms of implementing that more ebb and flow throughout the week in terms of a rehab versus the go, go, go? Yeah, a little bit, mainly because it was a it was for some sort of more established athletes, it was it was a bit of a new philosophy and and um you know, I've worked with coaches or managers previous that, you know, rehab has sort of been lambasted because they don't look like they're working hard and, you know, you you gotta flog them in rehab and, you know, that sort of old adage of, you know, he's in rehab because it's easy, you know, that sort of stuff. Whereas, you know, I, I don't sort of subscribe to any of that. Um so there's, there's a bit of that old school sort of, um, I suppose, um, what is it, a, a, an old school sort of theory that there's probably embedded in the sport a little bit. Um, and yeah, for some of your more established athletes, I think, you know, that's been been something to sort of, you know, educate and navigate. But um, for the most part, it's been pretty well received. Did you find that, I know you only had, well, you say only, you had three years at Arsenal. Did you find that in football in the UK as well? And I listened to a couple of podcasts and maybe the old school managers get referenced a little bit more than the than the young guys, but like keeping people out of the physio room because it's kind of a, as soon as they go in there, there's there's a mentality of of pain, of, of kind of down regulation, all this kind of stuff, which I just think is personally I think it's absolute bullshit but is that something that you found in the UK as well yeah a little bit um yeah a little bit the, the one thing I was you know super um which was super impressive because we had some really good practitioners there Jordan Reese, uh Chris Morgan who's now at Liverpool Jordan's still at at Arsenal um Tom Allen's head of sports science um and, and their sort of agenda was was really about you know, getting guys moving, but and pushing the envelope definitely. But but equal to that, I think there was a real one thing, whether it's new or old or something we did. But we we tried to sort of be really transparent about what a plan looked like. And I think with that, um, you could actually roll out to coaching staff and and so forth. You know what a week looks like, and especially for the athlete, they know when the key work days are when the rest days are, when the opportunities are to be on the table and equal to that, when they should not be in there, they should be out, you know, in the gym or working. So having a fair bit of transparency of process, I think is super important and helps to sort of challenge that a little bit. And yeah, I'd like to think that we did a a pretty good job of that. Nice. One thing I spoke to Phil Glasgow and Nicole Van Dyke at uh, Irish Rugby about was this rise in calf injuries and they'd and it was uh david breen as well he presented something on um on the isometrics course alex natera about the increase in in calf injuries in in rugby union specifically irish rugby in the, in the provinces is that something that you're finding in afl as well 
Yeah, it's a good question. I think by the numbers, it certainly increased. And I think the last sort of three to five years, there's been a, a marked increase in games missed because of calf injuries. Um, what you'd attribute that to, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I mean, the, the, the dynamics of the game have become, you know, they seem to increase every year in terms of, you know, physical outputs on game day. Um, but yeah, we have, we have certainly seen an increase in that. And, and, you know, some of that is probably coupled with their understanding of, of calf injuries a little bit more as well. I think in the last sort of 10 years, I think we've become better at deducing, you know, what's significant, what's not. Um, yeah. So yeah, we've certainly in AFL circles seen, seen something very similar. Do you go through the same kind of rigorous process in terms of assessing those that are potentially at risk of calf injuries like you do with hammies or maybe not quite there or need to be there? Yeah, yeah, probably not to the same rigour, I wouldn't have thought. Um, I mean, philosophically, I think some of what we have, and I'm talking as a collective, I think we've, we've moved away from um, is perhaps, you know, the the nuts and bolts in terms of calf strength foundation work um, in both in both a horizontal and vertical plane. So um, I think, you know, without sort of hanging shit on any one particular genre of, of practitioner, but I think we've been seduced a little bit into the, the power plyo side of things. And, and maybe there is a, a case that we need to perhaps regress a little bit and spend a bit more time on the strength foundation you know, qualities. Um, but yeah, it, it's a, in a nutshell, it's hard in terms of the profiling. We, we do a little bit with force decks and some isometric um, surveillance. Um, we do some very crude sort of strength endurance testing. Um, and then obviously all your RSI testing and that sort of stuff to try and, you know, develop a bit of a picture of that. What are you doing when it comes to injury surveillance on force plates? That's something you can share? Yeah, we, I mean, we do baseline single leg sort of, you know, um, soleus test in terms of max force efforts. Um, we have our, obviously, our counter-movement jump, uh, drop jump is an assessment that we, we lean on. Um, yeah, so that, that sort of fits in with some of our profiling in that space. Um, and then probably, yeah, in equal to that, we, we, we tend to go down the path of, Again, microdosing of a fair bit of um, isometric load, primarily targeting sort of low calf soleus, because that seems to be the ones that are, are most debilitating for, for us in AFL. Um, and then ensuring that we're getting enough yeah, horizontal load as well. I think um, it's something that is probably missed a little bit is, you know, that ability to, to propulse horizontally. So, um, yeah, a lot of... You know, prowler marches and sled pulls and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's been pretty important. Nice, mate. Well, that's all I've got for you, and I'm 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 keen to can let you get get on with your let you get on with your evening. But thank you very much for coming on. Really do appreciate it. If there's anyone out there that wants to get in touch with you, talk about anything career wise or anything that we've chatted about today or anything else, where's the best place? Yeah, I'm not overly prolific in in Twitter, or um, but I yeah, I'll definitely get you know 
go backwards and forth on Twitter. Um, I think it's at Tim Parham is my my handle. Um, got that first, Tim. Alter- Sorry? You got in there first. I did, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, I suppose the other one is just, yeah, flick me an email or yeah, it's uh, tparham at afc.com.au and, yeah, happy to sort of, yeah, go backwards and forth. Legend. Like I say, I'm going to let you get back on with your evening. But I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for your uh, openness about all the things we've chatted about and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Nice one. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the chat and um, yeah, keep up the good work. Perfect. Thanks, Tim. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So episode 462 was with Tim Parham and I really appreciate Tim giving up his time, lining up our diaries and uh, coming on to talk about hamstring injuries. Big thanks to Team Builder, Hawking Dynamics, Play and our brand new sponsor, Rock Daisy for this episode today really appreciate what these guys are doing the podcast could not run its current form without these guys so i really do appreciate all their support big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time 